Welcome to Game Brain, a podcast about board games and our gaming group. I am Trey Alsop, and I am your host for this episode. And listeners, get ready to get immersed with four, count them, four Game Brain co-hosts. First off, we have the Viceroy of Virtual Reality, the <laughs> Professor Eric Elder. Hey, what's up, guys? And also joining us, the man who puts the me in immersive, the philosophical gamer, Dimitri Portnoy. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. And finally, the Matt who started it all, our own game enthusiast, Matt Robinson. Hey, everybody. I'm very happy to be here. And I, uh, is this the first four that we've ever done? I think this is no, the first four No, the player. first four no? we've ever done was you, Trey, me, and Paul. Oh, uh, all right, That's cool. the last podcast of 2020. Remember back when? So I've been on all of the fours. Exciting. Well, this is this is awesome. I, I don't think I was meant to be on this episode, but when I heard you were reviewing Arc Nova, I had to be a part of it because I am excited to talk about this game. It's always a pleasure to have Matt number one, number one Matt with us. There's been talk of <laughs> Matt number two. There's even rumors of a Matt number three, but you are number one Matt. I'll take it. I'll take it. Thank you very much. Matt number three is Candace's Matt for those keeping track at home. Uh, this is round 14, turn 11. Turn 11. And on our on today's playlist, uh, as Matt said, we're reviewing Arc Nova. We also have a discussion on immersiveness and board games. And finally, we wrap it up with what games are on our brains as our favorite games of 2021. Should we just jump right into game night? Or did you want to visit more, Matt? No, I, I feel like we have so much to talk about. Let's just talk about games. Okay, so game night. The, the big news was supposed to be um, Jennifer's Essen Day, but due to uh, you know the COVID reemergence, that has been delayed. That has been pushed to uh, March. Um, I've only thing I've really been playing is we've played a lot of Arc Nova. Yeah this week what what about you elder yes uh same here arc nova also a few games of uh of uh tim how do you call it Timbo timboku bitoku T yes bitoku bitoku yes right um which is you know like the kind of knockoff miyazaki themed game <laughs> um do you like that one elder which is fun. Yeah, I, I, I like it. I like it. It's not, you know, it's no Ark Nova, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers, no spoilers. But That's then fun. again, what is? Yeah. But I see you also got in a game of uh, hege hegemony. hegemony? Yeah. yeah, we, we did a learning game. The other not day. hegemony? He hegemony is what I've been saying. He hegemony? Hegemony? Okay, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. We, we if only a... Tom were here to correct our pronunciation. I think it's hegemony. I'm pretty sure it's hegemony. Hegemony, yeah, that sounds I right. could be wrong. Uh, Tom would say it's hegemony. <laughs> That's how I say it. I but we did a we did a learning game. Ben taught it to us. Um, 
And that, that's um, the game about class warfare, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I got the capitalists. Uh, ben is playing the states. Paul is playing the working man. Paul the proletariat. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. the fourth one? Is there like? Is uh, it like the middle class? The middle. Oh, interesting. Middle okay. Class. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Fun um, theme. Yeah, it is, and it's like it's really fascinating how how interlocking. Like we're really, you know, we're just like in our second round of the of the actual game after we learned it, and just you know we were talking about. It's a pretty lengthy game though, but we were you know we were taking a break. We saved it. Um, I'm excited for the um, the 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 hippie commune expansion. I think yeah. that'll be. I think that'll be good. Yeah, that should be dope. Um, but we were just talking about like the, just the how the game does a really good job of having the factions be interdependent and at certain times. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, one round you might be like, "Well, I really gotta gotta make nice with the state," and then another round you're jamming them up by forcing them to, you know, buy some educational contracts. It almost sounds like root to me in that sense that there's four asymmetrical factions that at certain points all are designed to sort of need each other in different ways. Yeah, sounds cool. It's already closed on Kickstarter, but um, and probably not delivering for at least a year or two. But sounds super cool. I've actually been a communist version of a Boy Scout, a young pioneer. We had a red kerchief and everything. We saluted the USSR, and I was like really, really into it. It was a point of pride for me that when my class visited the uh, Lenin Museum, I was the one chosen to leave a perfectly uh, pen-written note of gratitude in in the journal. If you are playing the drinking game at home, where every time Dimitri does something very Dimitri, take your first shot. (laughs) Just drink the whole bottle. (laughs) Elder, um, (laughs) is there a reason why uh, Ben did not invite Dimitri to play this game, or is it just obvious... <laughs> You'll have to ask Ben that. But. Well, Ben did not invite me this time. Uh, there are so many reasons not to invite me. But this time, were you playing it on Tabletopia or Tabletop Simulator? TTS, yeah. TTS. yeah, yeah you, you, we know that you are. Blow up. So, yeah. uh, as we, we learned we... when we tried to play. Our... Oh, I shouldn't say anything. <laughs> uh, Matt. Let's go to you on uh, your your game night. Yeah, um, I have been uh, playing Ark Nova with you guys online. I uh, have done almost no in-person gaming this entire year. Uh, of course, for COVID reasons, but but mainly work and family reasons. Um, but I have been playing solo games, um, and I've been playing Messina 1347 solo, which is interesting. I'm not quite convinced it's a keeper for me. Um, but I have only played it solo. Uh, and I've been playing, somebody designed a very simple solo version of Taverns of Tiefenthal, which is maybe my favorite deck builder. And I got my hands on a copy of the Open Doors expansion, which is awesome. And I don't know if you guys have ever played that game, but I am a huge fan of that game. And the expansion is, it feels like a complete game now. It's so it's it's so complicated and heavy for a, for like, a 30 minute deck builder. We're but, still talking uh, about taverns here. Yeah. Yeah. Taverns yeah. is heavy. Okay. Well, it's heavy. Once you put all four modules in from the base game and all four modules in from the expansion, um, it's not heavy. It's, it's just, 
there's a lot of, there's a wide decision space now and many paths of strategy. And it, I don't know, to me, it's like, I love deck builders a lot and it's the most original, interesting one I've ever played. I really love it. I wonder if there's a player count issue with Messina because I, I think I, I saw on uh, Jennifer's feed, she had played Messina at two and had been kind of unimpressed and then played a game of it at four and suddenly really liked it and rated it an eight. Um, yeah, it so, totally could be one of those games that's you read the rule book and you go, I don't get what's going on here. This seems all pretty cut and dry and almost like maybe on the light side of medium weight. And then after a few games, you go, oh, there's a lot more going on here under the hood. I think there's a chance for that. I felt that way about Praga. Um, uh, I think I think there's a chance for that. It's definitely like it's Yokohama-ish in the sense that like there's this worker placement board and you have to spatially move around on it. And so th- definitely the more players that are there, the more blocking is going to happen and the more interesting things that will happen in that. Um, but yeah, I think you could, I think it's a 15 minute teach tops, like, which is not a lot for uh, that designer. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's medium weight at best. Yeah. It's yeah, not especially got, complex. Go ahead. No, I got my first game in uh, this oh. week of Messina. And what'd you I, think? Uh, I, I was lukewarm on it. Um, I, I would, I would be fine with playing it again to see. What was yeah. your player count on that yeah. elder? It was a full game. It was four players. It was full form. Yeah. Maybe the little, like a game that has little wooden rat tokens though. Like that's definitely takes it up a level. Yeah. That's a plus for sure. The theme, the theme is dope and there's some cool ideas in it. It's just, it's a, it's just a, seems like a pretty bog standard engine builder in a lot of ways. I thought Tom and Jennifer both rated it as their number one of the year. Jennifer Tom certainly did, did not. No, Tom Jennifer's did. number one game is Imperial Steam. Imperial Steam. Oh, Please sure. consult last week's episode to see the ratings uh, from Tom, Ben, and Jennifer. I think after a couple games more of each, I would imagine Tom will swap his number one and his number four, which was Ark Nova and Messina. But I, I, I look forward to hearing what he thinks. We Tom shall dominated uh, the game that we played with him oh, of Ark Nova. Well, it definitely moved up in the rankings then. you like games better when you win or at least uh i do yeah let's get to a really quick news okay the um just in the spirit of covid canceling everything uh the new york toy fair was canceled this week and as well as the spielwar essen messe in nuremberg which is kind of like the larger uh, toy fair in Germany that's not so board game specific the way that uh, Spiel at Essen is. So a uh, couple of casualties there. Um, Portal Games has announced that they are going to co-publish or publish the English edition of Gutenberg here in the United States. Um, it's published by Grana in Europe. It's and then a game Matt- you liked a lot, right? Trey? Uh, I did. I did like it. Um, very well. I only got one play in it at BGG Con, uh, but I think it's, it's a solid game and very pretty. A lot of the the tactile elements of it because you're playing a printer, yeah. And one of the things you end up with are actually like little wooden block letters that you use to form. Uh, you don't exactly form words, but you use these vowels mm-hmm. in order to kind of complete contracts. So it's they're a resource. Of, yeah, 
it's a I, resource that builds it up. It got a, a wildly glowing review from Tom Vassell today, which you don't expect for a, um, a sort of bland looking medium weight Euro. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Usually when people who don't love heavy Euros like a medium weight Euro, it perks my interest because it, it makes me think uh, there's you know a little more fun happening maybe here than you usually find for 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 casual gamers or you know less heavy gamers so i don't know it sounds it sounds no, cool it was, it was a really solid one i'm i'm, I'm guessing that we'll we'll get to a review as soon as we get a, a physical uh copy of it yeah uh, the, like it's my pre-order now i think they're not shipping until february i think i'll check the uh, the short version of like my take on the game is it was like the ultimate game of you're kind of moving through certain stages and you watch as the person in front of you takes the thing that you want. You're doing a lot of <laughs> don't take that. Don't take that. Oh, you took that kind of kind of thing. So it's a little bit of um, like what happens in Crystal Palace or other games where you're, you're, you're constantly involved, even when it's not your turn, because what other players are doing limits your options so severely. Oh, and I remember what was interesting about it to me when I, I watched the review of it today was uh, it has like a bidding system for the actions where you have these cubes and you place them behind a screen on the action you want and you're guaranteed to get the action. But the more cubes you put on that action, the, the higher chance you'll have of doing it before other people. So you're bidding for for a turn order on every action, which is I've never seen that before. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, and so there's that is that is certainly like an iocane moment where you're you're trying to guess what other people are going to reasonably bid on that, and then just slightly beat them. You know, like yeah. you can, sometimes you can prioritize things in that game and saying that's it, I'm putting five cubes on this action, and you still come in third. Right, um, like that's entirely uh, possible given the the timing of the game, but no, it was definitely a, a solid uh, recommend. I only got in one play. I'm eager to, to, to play it again. All right. I'll pre-order it. Okay. Uh, Matt, Fine. do you want to tell us about the new Viscounts Kickstarter? Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Matt Robinson and I can't stop buying uh, Shem Phillips games that I don't play and I'd like to, but he, <laughs> he has this thing where um, he keeps releasing games and then he releases expansions that come with a big box for it. And once you buy one, I can't handle my shelf having different sized boxes of games that are made by the same designer. So I end up having to back all of them and I never play them. Um, actually, I did like Viscounts of, of this trilogy of the West. No, this is not even the West Kingdom. Yes, the West Kingdom trilogy. I think this one's really good. Paladins, I think, is still my favorite. Architects is super solid and gets better with the expansion. Paladins also, I think, got better with the expansion, albeit I only play it solo. And even when you play with other people, you're playing it solo. Uh, but Viscounts is the heaviest of them. And I liked it a lot. I played it twice, I think. So it felt like enough excitement to get the expansion and see if it might become something great. But yeah, it's yeah, on Elder, Kickstarter when now. When I think of this design that I think of you, because you're such a fan of Architects, uh, is yeah. that still the case? Yeah, I like that. I mean, I haven't played it in a while. Um, you know, it's funny. It's like I, I have it. And I think by the time I bought it, I had already kind of played the heck out of other people's copies. So, um, but I like, I like, I love, I love the, um, what these guys have done as far as like mm -hmm. the world of these games. Like I'm really a fan of the art, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, same. I'm, I'm 
originally and you know a, a visual artist and animator so i could really appreciate the like the character design like the style and how they take you know little bits and pieces and the iconography i'm a big fan of like really strong iconography in games and i think they do a good job of that and so i like how i mean i think it's pretty impressive that they've done several games i didn't like the first one the the one with the raiders of the north sea yeah i wasn't a fan of that one but um yeah architects uh uh what is it viscounts Viscounts, Architects, and uh, Paladins. Pal- and, Paladins is my favorite of all of them, but it yeah, is I, it is I a like, heads-down solo game. Yeah, I like Paladins, too. Yeah. Uh, am I incorrect, or does there seem to be a social deduction component uh, <laughs> in this one? Because it's like, who's the... Oh, okay. Not that I not that I know of. I've only I mean, like I said, I just click the back button when he puts a new expansion out, and I figure out what is in it later. But uh, I don't see anything that's like that, and that, I don't think that would really fit in this game. So, Matt, um, this particular Kickstarter though, it's actually it's like two different expansions, right? Is two it different expansions Gate, that are Gate of Gold and Keeper of Keys. Yeah, two yeah. different expansions, and then a big box that will fit both expansions and the base game. Yeah, so and that sadly appeals to you. Well, he makes his boxes so small that if you buy an expansion, you'll have to keep both the expansion box and the base game box, and I can't handle that. Can't do so that. now I, I, I hate it. Uh, so then he makes you buy a big box that it all fits in, and then you feel like you have one game. And then you can sleep better at night. And then, you know, you keep buying more games from him, and that's it. And yeah. one day you die. And, and, and it just costs money. So Yeah, it's just money. It's just, mm. it's all, it's just money. It's just, it's just, you know, I like to support the New Zealanders. Yes. There's not a lot of New Zealand designers. That's true. All right. Well, let's, let's quit stalling and let's get to our review. Because this is a big game, and I think we got a big review uh, in store for people. Uh, this week, we are reviewing Arc Nova. This game plays uh, one to four. Uh, according to BGG, it plays best at two. We will probably revisit that. Uh shows a playing time of 90 minutes to 150 minutes. I would say that's heavily player count dependent. Uh, a weight of 3.76. The designer is Mateus Vigia. Um, artists, I'm going to butcher these names, I apologize, but Loic Bilau, Dennis Lohausen, and Stefan Beaker. Yeah, Loic Bilau and Dennis Lohausen are both superstars of board game design. I mean, they're, if you look at either of their credits, they have done all the games at the top 100. I mean, Dennis Lohausen is, my, is probably my favorite artist of all time. So he, I mean, he's done Guy Project, Terra Mystica, Quacks of Quedlinburg, Voyage to Marco Polo, Feast for Odin, Fields of Arl. I mean, he does everything. Um, and it's funny because you look at this game and you don't see a lot of art. But, but I imagine a, a ton of great graphic design must have happened behind the scenes to make it shine. Uh, yeah. Is it just because Eno tool is easier to say that we talk about Eno tool? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Or easier to say for me, I should say. I, I, Dennis Lohausen is one of those people who I will almost buy a game if his name is on it. I like his art so much. Uh, I want to say something about the art here. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's not a lot of art that's like big art, but in terms of iconography, on the cards, um, mm-hmm. and, and in terms of tags, uh, they're beautifully, very cleanly done. You you look at them and you instantly know what they mean. Trey, should yeah. I 
Oh, good. Talk about the I'll publisher. Just say, like, finally, I'll just to mention the uh, the publisher is, is uh, Furland Spiel, and it's being released by Capstone in the United States. So, Matt, if you want to kind of do our initial overview, why don't you hit it? Yeah. So this is a medium to heavy zoo game. Uh, it is a action selection game with a really interesting card mechanic. Um, and it is a game where you have a main market board, but you also, most importantly, have your zoo board in front of you. And that is sort of the cornerstone of the game is everybody building a zoo. And you are actually building a zoo. You have an empty zoo in front of you, and you are going to be buying enclosures and filling them with animals and collecting different animals from around the world via cards, filling up your board with different animals in order to get appeal, which is basically tickets, meaning people coming, wanting to come to your zoo. But the game is not won on popularity alone. You must be a strong conservationist as well. And in fact, there are two scoring tracks in the game. One is appeal, one is conservation. You have to be doing good deeds to make the world better and safer for animals and to preserve the bloodlines and the safety of these creatures. Uh, and in doing so, you will be moving along both of these tracks and both tracks move towards each other. And the game end condition is when your appeal and your conservation tokens meet or pass each other. That triggers the end of the game. So... In essence, a lot of people have compared this to Terraforming Mars, and I can see why in the fact that it is a game with 200-odd cards, and each one of them is unique. There are no multiple copies of cards in the game, just like Wingspan, just like Terraforming Mars. This is a heavy card-driven game. You are going to be uh, not drafting cards at the beginning, but starting with a big hand and making decisions about which cards you're going to keep, much like in Terraforming Mars. And all the decisions in the game are going to be based around the cards that are available in the market or cards that you're blind drawing off the deck. In combination with that, you're going to spend a lot of your time looking at these five action cards in front of you. And there's a really fun action selection mechanic in this game, wherein each card, if you can picture the cards all next to each other with numbers above them, starting with one going to five, if you trigger a card at the five strength slot, you will do a five strength version of that action. So for example, if I want to build a five hex enclosure in my zoo, I have to have the build action on the five space of my board. Then I slide that action down and it becomes a one again and everything else moves up. So there's this really fun puzzle of action selection in the correct order so that you have the strong actions when you need them and uh, access to others when you don't. Um, but for the most part, uh, this is a card game with a really interesting board in front of you uh, where you are building a zoo. The theme is strong. It has that Agricola satisfaction of even if you lost, you built a beautiful zoo filled with cool animals. You made partnerships with other zoos around the world for discounts. You hired people who gave you special asymmetric powers throughout the game, and you uh, completed these conservation projects, which are the most important scoring aspect of the game in order to uh, help the animals of the world. And that is sort of a high-level view of the game, I think. Yeah, well done. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um, and uh, I don't... I think like there's nothing that is particularly unique or novel about what they're doing here or what, what the game does, but I think it does combine a number of different mechanisms that we've seen before in a really brilliant 
way. I think people have pointed out that this kind of action selection mechanism um, existed before with Civilization and New Dawn. Mm. I think Candace pointed that out uh, to me, and I agree That's that funny. This- I played that, and I didn't. I didn't remember that. That's funny. It didn't stick out to me in that game for some reason. Yeah. So, like, maybe one, like half the cards in the deck are animals. They're all unique. Uh, sponsors end up giving you kind of like permanent powers. Um, so again, like a little bit like, like Agricola, where that can be almost like the occupations, where you'll have something persistent that will continue to trigger as as you play it, and then it has another uh, twenty different conservation projects that players can introduce in addition to like the base conservations that are there in the at the beginning. Um, I think I I'm definitely one of those people that feel like. Um, this has a lot of terraforming Mars DNA, both in terms of like the card play, all these unique cards in that your, your engine may not be obvious at the beginning, but then it develops in a way that's really interesting. And also like in terraforming Mars, you have like a terraforming rating, which acts both as your score and as your income or your core income, the same way that uh, appeal does in the yeah, game. I, d- I don't think I agree that I, I definitely, the minute I read the rules of this, I went, ah, terraforming Mars. There's a lot of terraforming Mars in here, but I don't think it's a comparable comparison that one would make between Gaia project and uh, Terra Mystica, or one would make between Brash Lancaster and, and Brash Birmingham. I, I don't think it's just another version of it. I think no. it's, there's a lot of DNA there, but it's not, this is not a, which one do I, I don't think this fires. Another, I mean, no. I know I remember Jennifer saying it fired Terraform Mars for her, but it, 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 I have a different opinion on that. It does not for me. In fact, I, I, it, they, I think they play radically differently in terms of strategy, in terms of the, the actual feel of playing the game. There's just a lot of, ah, yeah, this has that, I mean, the tags really, the tags on the card and needing to have the tags as requirements. It's real. the tags to me is like, oh, that's terraforming Mars. But this is just a cool, different way to use that. Yeah. Right. So, like, the ta- one of the things, like, the tags, some of these animals are difficult to actually play. It's not simply a matter of building the right enclosure and then paying money. Sometimes you like, in order to, put this animal down you have to already have a bear or you already you know you have to have a partnership with the you know with the australian zoo um elder you um you've probably got the most plays of this there's do you no want to talk about like what what about this game has grabbed you <laughs> yeah, there's no so problem. severely there's no probably i'm sure I've, I've played it more than than everybody here combined <laughs> i got like i think at last count i got at, like including the Two player game I played right before this. I'm at like 45 plays. Wow! So um, I think that's yeah, more so plays than I played of my favorite game. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still I, I think I'm gonna my most played game so far uh, is Glass Road, and I think I'm, I'm sure mm. I'm past that this, this year. So yeah. So to the question, what's grabbed me about it is, um, you know, I mean high level is just fun. And then I know that's elusive. So that's not really an answer. Right. But I, I just really enjoy it again, even, you know, my win percentage is not very high at all, but I still enjoy every single game. Um, I think there is a, I, I wouldn't consider myself a big gambler, but I think there's definitely a, a gambling aspect to this game that, that is a big part of the fun, like from your, oh, I mean, I, I just love like that, getting your initial eight cards and you have to, so the first thing you do is you get dealt eight cards and you have to um, discard down to four. Um, 
but seeing how your initial cards match up with what the base, the three base conservation projects are. I think that's a fun thing. See, like what, what matches up? It's like, oh, I got some great matches or, you know, in the game we played, um, you know, the other night, I just, I mean, again, I didn't win the game, but it gave me a strong start. I got three petting zoo animals. Whoa. I got, you know, a big, cause you know, the, one of the things I've, that, that I'm jumping around a little bit, but one of the things I think the game does brilliantly is, um, and I know from a design, you know, like attempting to design board games is so difficult to do. Um, money is tight at the beginning and then scales beautifully to like towards the end, you almost have so much money you don't know what to do with. Hundred percent, and I think that's so hard to pull off, and 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 it's and it's just done, you know, fantastically here. Let's um, talk about the um, the round structure of this game because that's certainly a way that's very different than terraforming Mars. Terraforming yeah. Mars, you you play generations of you know you play a certain number of generations until you know end conditions are met but generally like you will continue to play actions within a generation until you can no longer play anymore and some people will pass while some other players are continuing to play during that generation this is a very different situation um matt do you want to explain like the the break yeah, structure of this there's a, a break that happens, which is literally a coffee break, and the, the, the little piece that moves is a coffee cup. Um, certain actions in the game, I think there are two, uh, at least on your five actions, uh, cause the break to move. Um, one of them uh, is the card action that causes it to move two anytime someone takes the card action. But then the interesting one is the sponsor's action, which, depending on the strength of it, will give you money, but then you have to move the break token that many spaces. So what that means is that you don't have full control over how long the round is going to last. You have some. Uh, you can definitely speed it up, but you can't slow it down. So you need to be prepared at all times for somebody to end the round. Now, why is that important to you? Well, first of all, there's a hand limit in this game, and the hand limit is three cards. This is a card game. If you've ever played a card game before, you'll know three cards is not enough cards in your hand. Uh, in Terraforming Mars, you often have 16 cards. In fact, you, you, there's an award for having 16 cards in the game. Um, so if you have more, which you will, you've got to ditch some cards. So you, you are scared of that break happening for that reason, and you were excited for it happening because that's when you get your income. But everybody gets their income when the break happens. And obviously what's best for you is that your income is better than everybody else's. And if it is, you want that break to happen all the time because you're making more money, getting more benefits, and they're not. You're getting richer and they're staying the same. And so that will speed up your engine a lot. So there's so many interesting decisions that happen in the break. Also, cards get wiped off the board. It does your basic classic sort of round restart every time it happens. But the most important things are discarding, and income happened there. And it's a really fun push-pull sort of tug of war about when it's going to happen. Let's I wanted to circle back to um, the action selection in this game because I think, uh, you know, this may have appeared in other games like Civilization and New Dawn. Um, I hadn't played it before. Uh, I think it's great. Like, it, this is a, if this has been used before, it's a great mechanism to to rip off. And maybe one other, like, piece of information that, that people can, should understand is one of the things that happens as you play the game is you have the opportunity to upgrade these actions. There's, like, a blue side, which is the base side yes. that everyone starts with, and then when you have the opportunity, you can get an upgrade, an action upgrade, and you get to decide which of these five 
actions of build cards, animals, sponsor or association, which of these things am I going to upgrade? And then there's an upgraded version of it, which is just better. And but the main thing that the better version normally do does is it allows you to play from that center market board. In addition to the cards in your hand, there's kind of a almost through the ages style card market that's flowing uh in this in the center of the board and the upgraded action a lot of times allows you to play directly from that board so that in a sense you like your hand size is enlarged you 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 can play from this common pool um and that gives you much much more flexibility in terms of the strategy that you're pursuing yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and uh, yeah, I, I totally forgot to talk about the upgrading actions thing. So thank you for <laughs> making sure we did. But well, there's, a one of, there's a lot. There's a lot in this game. One, one of the best decisions in this game is at most, and this is if you're doing the best you can do in the game, at most, you're upgrading four out of your five. Three is pretty easy to do. Four, you got to you got to deny yourself an extra worker because there is a small worker placement element to this game. If you deny your first worker, you could get four upgrades. So even at best, you're, you're not upgrading all of them. So there's so many great, interesting decision points in your strategy of what cards you're going to upgrade and what, you know, what you're going to be better at than other people. And making sure you upgrade things that other people haven't upgraded can often be really good, especially that sponsor action you know, for just getting big money and then you know, forcing that uh, break to happen fast. I mean, Elder, with the number of plays you've had, um, like, I don't know about you, but the idea that there would be, for example, a dominant strategy in this game, I do not, I like, it's right out the the window. It's so card dependent. And at least so far, it seems like there is so much room to explore different kinds of strategies. I mean, it's going to be card driven generally, but uh, they're giving you the tools in this game to go so many different routes. And that can be, I mean, this game. This game is in danger of being a high AP game. There are there are times, especially because of the sequencing, I find where I have to pause and really, like, almost map out the next three or four things I'm going to do, and that and that can freeze it up. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I think that goes away with a certain number of days. <laughs> if I were just better. Yeah, yeah, it's just experience. I think it's just it's just learning the cards and and um, I mean, so going back to your question before about what's captivated me about this game, probably the number one thing is what we're talking about now, which is the um, opportunity for combos. I mean, again, with this many cards, it's you know definitely combos were falling to certain categories, but it almost feels if if I know it's not, but it feels infinite, right? Like it just seems like there's so many you know, that I've discovered so far. Um, and then, and then you're also combining the cards with the, we haven't talked about the maps yet. So there's a basic map, beginner's mm-hmm. map that everybody could play, but then there's also some very des- uh, well-designed, I think there's eight variable power maps where each, each map that you play has its own unique power and layout and different bonuses that you could get for covering up. I- I'd like to jump in here for a moment and say sure, that, please one of the uses of the map is that when you build in certain hexes, you do get those bonuses elder that you just mentioned. And while you can get those bonuses in other ways, uh, like the black X's uh, that, that, that uh, can power up your cards to a higher level uh, or, 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 or new workers uh, or, or money. Um, there's uh, an interesting dynamic here 
where the board helps you when you build on it in various ways. And, and that makes it strategic. Do I need the money now? Do I save it for later? When do I build this five-level ex- uh, enclosure? Uh, do I need to have space for a five-level enclosure? Uh, all of that, this, like, it's not just hexes. It's not, it's not like Agricola either, where you, you can maybe get a few bonuses here or there. It, it's much more interactive and, 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 and much more intriguing for me personally. Right, and, and Agricola, also- it, may be a, it may be a blank slate. This is the opposite of that. Each map is unique and presents its own uh, challenges. Sorry, go ahead, Matt. Benefits. Yeah. 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 No, I was just saying that's another Terraforming Mars thing is that, you know, putting down things onto the board and, and getting bonuses out of them as well, except it's not a communal board. Everybody has their own. Um, Elder, you, you've played this, you have the most experience with this game. Can you talk to us a little bit about favorite player counts, where you think it's best, strongest, weakest, what your favorite player count is? Yeah. So again, another super impressive thing. I know from, again, a game design point of view, it is very, very difficult to design something that works at all player counts. And I think I've played it at all and it works beautifully at all player counts. It's fantastic. I like this. I do not play solo modes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've, I've played this solo mode several times just, just for practice, just for fun. Um, I do not agree with BGG uh, in that two. I, I like it at two, but I think three is the real sweet spot. Um, I've heard some complaints that four uh, takes too long. Um, I, I don't agree. Again, I think once everybody is experienced, I think a four-player game, of course, will be longer, but I don't think it's too long. I don't, I don't think this game ever wears out, wears out its welcome. Yeah, it's only too long if you're not having fun. Exactly. And, and, and again, it's like you, it's one of those games because it's a race and, and underneath everything, I feel like that's the, really the thing. It's a, it's a race to get those two markers uh, to meet each other as quickly as possible. And if you lose focus of that, which is pretty easy to do with all the things going on, you might get distracted by you might get some cool sponsor cards or you might get some big cards from uh, some uh, that have tags on it that are not base conservation or, or, or could be used for conservation and you can get points, but it's really just a distraction. Like you, you have to keep your eye on that prize of like getting your tickets up, you know, as quick as you can, mostly to get the money, but it's really all about the green points, the conservation points, because, you know, it's really important to get those first few, like you want to get your initial uh, uh, card flip. You want to be first, choice on the two bonuses that you get on the conservation track. Um, you know, when you get to 10 is when you discard each player gets two scoring in game scoring cards at the beginning, but you're going to have to discard one. Once one player gets to that 10 on the conservation track, which I haven't seen that. I think that's a great way to handle that. Um, but then after that 10 point, every conservation point becomes three as opposed to two previously right so for for what i'm saying is once you get to to 10 conservation points after that for every one conservation point is three tickets so the game really accelerates at that point once you get there and and that's when you can really fall behind or really pull pull ahead i I want to make a point here that that uh while the person who gets the tracks to meet first triggers the end of the game uh, the first person to do that is not necessarily the winner uh, because the winner is going to be 
the one with the biggest difference in the positive direction. And in, in, in that respect, the game is a little bit like Tribune, where in Tribune you can uh, uh, trigger the end of the game by meeting four win conditions or five conditions. But after the next move, someone may get seven win conditions. Uh, and, and this is a possibility here. You may trigger the end, but someone can outrace you if they were planning for a big uh, uh, last round. Yeah, for clarity, this is one of those games where when the end condition is triggered, every other player gets one more action. So there can be a little bit of a kind of a playing chicken for ending oh, the yeah. game, where Big ending time. the game can actually lose it for you. And I gotta say, like the the game end condition in this, the way the game actually ends is maybe the most interesting game end. I've ever experienced in a game and I, and it continues to kind of expand the possibilities. I think we've seen uh, a game that we, you know, that you, me and elder played Matt where you should have won and you didn't bring the end close enough as soon as you could have. And I ended up passing you. I felt like I blew the game with uh, Tom the other night where I, you know, was going, going for five, you know, I had you know, three big moves if I took five actions or two big moves if I just took two actions and I should have just ended it. But like how you end the game, how you choose to end the game has all kinds of permutations that I have, I've never seen before. And like, that's incredibly dramatic as like as a narrative experience. Yeah. And I want to mention on the, the, the game that, that we played together, uh, uh, me, Matt and Trey, um, how you you pulled that win out was I was saying so one one thing we didn't mention there's there's few I know some not everybody likes take that mechanics in games this game does have a slight take that or catch up mechanic in that there's certain animals that will give you actually a, a certain class of animals so it's only reptiles that will give you either uh, constriction or or poison or venom. And I think there's one Can't other monkey steal cards sometimes. Right. Too. Yeah. 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 But it's just like, I think it's just a few of those. It's not a token. Yeah. yeah. It's more, it's more common with the, with the snakes. And then there's even also a hypnotation, uh, um, power where you can use somebody else's action. Yeah, there's some them. negative effects yeah. power. Yeah, there's a few. And I, and again, I think it's beautiful in that, like, it's not, I mean, Again, this was a case where it was. Typically, it isn't usually impactful. It may slow the players down. It might, it might, um, you know, frustrate them a little bit, giving you a little bit of an opportunity to catch up. You played it beautifully, Trey, when you actually played it at just the right moment, where it actually completely kind of froze uh, me and Matt for two full rounds, giving you the opportunity to to catch up for the win. Yeah. No, I had the game. I had the game in the bag. It was done. (laughs) On my next action, I was going to take a conservation action, association action, and put down a huge thing, end the game. You guys are going to have one turn left. I was going to be so far ahead. It didn't matter. Trey constricts my association card so that it's a strength three, not five. I can't take the conservation action at three. I have to figure out other things until they go away. But here's the cool thing. Here's why it didn't bum me out. it, It was completely my fault. I, if I had known the card pool, if I had known what Trey was capable of, all I needed was to just make sure that I had two strength tokens. That's it. And if I had saved, and you can get those at any time by taking an action and just taking a strength token. If I had done that twice before and just built those up or, or held them throughout the game, 
he, I would have won. He wouldn't have been able to stop me. And his, and his thing would have been utterly useless against me. Cause I just go, well, I don't care. I just play these and your constriction means nothing and the game's over. So that was actually a take that, that was a, a really fun learning experience for me. Cause it was like, oh, this game is deep. And that was my fault. And that was really cool, Trey. Uh, another you, thing about ahead, that ending uh, is is that you're not going to pull out a scoring pad uh, and, and take 10, 15 minutes uh, adding up everybody's score. Um, but at the same time, you won't really know who's in the lead uh, until the ending happens. True. Well, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Threading the needle like that, uh, you know, is, is amazing. It's miraculous. Yeah, just for just for clarity, and maybe this is me just um, arguing over words. You know, I tend to hate these kind of powers in games. It doesn't bother me so much in this, and it's never in this game. For example, when you have a directed aggression from one of these things, it only affects the people that are ahead of you on the score chart, whether it's appeal or it's conservation. So at no time, unlike for example, a meteor in terraforming Mars, when I get to decide who am I hitting with this meteor, it's automated. You're not deciding I'm hitting Tom with this. It's, it's just going to affect the leader. So it's more of a headwind thing. And, um, I mean, I think it's, it was interesting. Uh, cause like I had raised the issue of like, does, why does this game need a hand size? And I kind of raised that in a forum just to kind of get the design. If the designer wanted to weigh in and kind of just share his thoughts about why hand size, was necessary. And and I did get a great response from him, which is that, you know, this game has broad appeal, I think, but he does envision this as a more competitive, um, not a bashy, but like he expects this to be kind of a rough and tumble game where there are, there's some elbows thrown, you know, you're grabbing other people's animals that they wanted, you know, you have some, some negative effects. You can absolutely bring a break, uh, you know, right after someone just grabbed four cards so that they have to discard half their hand. Um, so even though this game, if you were just passing this by at the con, you it would get your attention and you might think, oh, this is Wingspan. You know, Wingspan has some aggression too, but, but this is designed to be a far more uh, competitive, sharp-elbowed uh, game, I think, as far as the designer is intending. Even though the cards have cute the animals on them. And I like really appealing. And and speaking to that, do you think uh, do you think the aggression in the game is is mitigatable for the most part? Or and do you think? Well, I, I guess we should also talk about there is there is a way uh, in, a variant in the rule book to play without the aggression yep. by using the cards. There's solo rules on the cards. And so all aggression cards have solo rules on them because obviously aggression cards would have no point in a solo game. And people are saying that, you know, who don't want it, they just sort of play with those instead. Yeah. But, but I'm curious why, why you think it doesn't bother you so much in this game, Trey, where it does in others. And is it because, well, because it's it, mitigatable? It is just targeting a, a single player. I mean, I, th- that was something that bothered me tremendously about terraforming Mars when I first played it. And then I kind of just grew to accept it and understand I mean, now I think I have a more nuanced opinion of like, oh, you have to have things like meteors in order to, because otherwise like plants can just, a plant strategy can just run away with it. I mean, it actually is kind of a balance issue. I still don't love it in Terraforming Mars. Here, it doesn't bother me as much. And I think as you pointed out, especially as the game progresses, 
other people's hands, frankly, are more transparent. If you are paying attention, people are pulling more cards and playing more cards from the center display. And so what people are doing should be less of a mystery. Like I doubt very seriously that, that I got that constrictor that I played on you without you actually knowing about it, if you were paying attention. And this is one of those games also that like when you first play, you're, it's going to be a very heads down experience because there's a lot going on, but with the reps, you start to play, you know, as good games do, your head starts to go up. You start to start to take in what other players are doing with their strategy. You start to see what other people are collecting. And so that you can kind of like um, strategically zag. You can't be doing what someone else is doing. You have to carve out your own niche in terms of reptiles or birds or primates, you know, or predators, um, because we're all competing over the card pool. Um, so well, let's, I'm looking you, forward to that, that, you know, greater heads up play and it's, ha and it's happening. And I think elder, yeah. I see elder nodding his head here too, that that's more and more you experience with further plays. Yeah. Um, let's talk just briefly about randomness. Now, I mean, elder, you'd spoken at the beginning about, you know, that, that it sort of sparks a gambling feeling in you. We just talked about a little bit of a take that aggression catch up mechanic. There's 200 unique cards in this game on paper this game looks random as hell but do, do you think that this is a high skill game a competitive game is this a game where the best player will always win absolutely absolutely again I, i've no. played I've, I've, <laughs> no, I've no the best player will not always win but that doesn't mean it's not a very competitive game yeah yeah i mean well again it's not I, chess We'll not put chess. a percentage to it. Do you think the best player will win 90% of the time? Or do you think the best player will win 50% of the time? Most most of the time, a high percentage. Again, I played with with these guys um, you know, from Europe online, right? And and they and they're just like they're just so strong and they like have really, you know, rocked the hell out of this game. And I learned so much from watching them play. And and this is one of the things that again, you know, again, on my list of things that, you know. I'm I'm fascinated and and you know why this has caught my attention so much is I, I I cannot wrap my head around how first of all there's so many cards that there's three different types of cards in the deck right so there's 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 the animals and then all their categories of animals right there's the sponsor cards and then there's the conservation cards how you just all mix those together and very rarely, if ever, do I feel stuck. Like there's always something you can do, right? Like, you know, I, I felt, you know, some frustration in games where it's like, God damn, I really need a herbivore and I have not seen one. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's usually because somebody else is snagging them, which is like that's right. where, you know, when you when you get to that point, like Trey was saying, where your head's up, you'll be able to see that happening. And and if you're not getting them, then you got to do something else. You got to be looking for a, a good conservation card that can can get you out of like there was a you know, that's how uh, uh, partially how. Um, how. Uh, oh gosh, Tom won the game the other night. Right. Like he, he actually had this and we haven't talked about scoring cards yet either. Right. Um, but he had the scoring card that was conservation projects. So uh, yeah. he was like, I saw you guys zig and I had to zag. Here's here's the mic drop also. I mean, we're all really impressed by this game. The mic drop here is this is a first time designer. This is his first game. 
are you kidding me? That's like some Citizen Kane stuff right there. <laughs> like that's like Orson Welles just like dropping it. Like his like I mean I don't know, man. I don't know if I've ever seen such a, a strong debut. No. Let's talk as a final thing. Uh, you know, when I first played this game, uh, let's talk about game length. When I first played this game, this game did seem long, and I want to be realistic with people in that this your first play of this game. If you are doing a teach with four people, don't. I, <laughs> hey, don't. But if you are in that situation, uh, you know, I think five hours would be reasonable. Easy. Yeah. E- easily. But with I experience, though, 45 minutes a person. We played a four player on Friday night in person and finished it right at three hours, the yeah. full game. And, and as and Matt was saying earlier, like even when it's long, it doesn't feel long. You're having a good time. Uh, another observation I would say is, for example, uh, I think Ben gave kind of a lukewarm, got a, a lukewarm first impression of Ark Nova when we were playing on Tabletop Simulator. Um, my experience so far has been as people play this game more, they like it more. So don't be surprised if your first play, especially because there's just a lot to take in. If you bounce off the game a little bit on your first play, I really want to encourage people to stick with it and your enjoyment of the game will grow with plays. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I have to say it took it took me about 10 plays. And again, I, I might be a little slow on the uptake, but it took me about 10 before I really started to get it. You know, if you got then, to ten yeah. plays, you were liking it. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I was absolutely liking it from from the start, from the from the first. I, I liked it from the rule book. I read the rule book and I was like, "Oh boy, this is real." Dimitri, um, you want to talk about I, what, I, I what appeals to you about this? Like my final thought. Uh, okay, because, great. Uh, for for me, I always ask myself uh, when we do reviews, "What does this game teach me?" Uh, And this game teaches me something I've never suspected before. Uh, And it's all about those two tracks uh, that are running in opposite directions, Uh, the appeal track and the conservation track, the fun tickets, animals, furry, slithery, beautiful enclosures that you build in the zoo track versus uh, we have to have um, um, uh, institutional alliances and we have to release animals into the wild track. To me, that mechanism itself is expressive. It makes me understand something that my friends who run zoos, like universities or high schools or museums or even presidential libraries on occasion, talk about which is they're like torn in two. They're heading in opposite directions. The fun personal projects that got them excited uh, about their work versus the administrative alliances and conservation that they hate doing, but they have to. So for me, that mechanism is meaningful in itself. It conveys something above and beyond the theme and the art and the story and the narrative of the game. And and the way I thought about it is that in in the best games, uh, mechanisms are mental choreography. Uh, They're choreography for the mind. They take us through steps. They teach us moves. And as we play them, we 
do a dance. We do a series of steps and a series of moves that has meaning in and of itself. It's like if I go to see the Swan Lake Ballet, uh, I can read in the program that it's a fairy tale about a prince and some waterfowl and a wizard. But if I just see the dance itself, just the moves itself, I'll be able to know that it's a story of unrequited, doomed love. And playing Arc Nova, even if I'm not looking at the cards that are marvelous, and even if I'm not looking at the board that represents the zoo, which is too small, uh, <laughs> even if I ignored all that, it still feels like me and my fellow players are doing an interpretive dance about the frustrations of institutional administrators. And I can't think of another thing that makes me feel that way. I can read a novel, maybe The Pale Kings by, uh, what's his name? Uh, but in any case, I can read a 900-page book about an administrator who's frustrated, or I can play Arc Nova and, and understand something that I may have heard other people talk about, but now I get to feel because of a mechanism because right. of an expressive mechanism. And I think that's stunning. It's amazing. Uh, it, it, it makes me like other games more because mm. of how good this game is, because of how expressive this mechanism is. It makes me eager to see if other mechanisms that maybe I didn't pay attention to in the past so much can do the same or can do something similar for me. Mm. Are you saying that... Um... Uh, if I simplify, I'm trying to simplify what you said a little bit. Is part of it just saying like this game models running a zoo so successfully, and the the, the considerations that go into running a zoo that that's part of the pleasure of it, and not just a zoo, but any institution, every institution that has competing two competing sets of goals, uh, like uh, in a university. All these fun science experiments and, and, and great new students and graduate students. And, oh, God, we have to uh, make sure that we comply, comply with this 300-page uh, set of regulations. Um, and it's one thing to understand it intellectually, but when a game forces you to jump through mental hoops uh, that are very tangible, that you can see in front of you, that you can see coming and you're like trying to squeeze through it and try to contort yourself uh, in a way to make those two tracks meet at the right time. That teaches me something uh, about what other people are going through uh, in, in similar institutional circumstances. I, I, I feel it's a, it, it kind of, in, other, in, in, in another language, it becomes a simulation but uh, of a human experience, but a simulation not because of how of its theme, but because of the mechanism, like a simulation embodied in the mechanism itself. That's actually really interesting. I never thought of it that way. But yeah, I, I can totally see that zoos are at opposing uh, sort of methodologies and maybe even moralities uh, in, in both of those two aspects of, of their Exactly. And the first time designer of Arc Nova noticed that 
yeah. and came up with a game specific thing that embodies the essence of it. I, mm. I think it's incredibly neat. I don't care if I win it. I don't care if I ever win it. But playing it taught me something, enriched me. Uh, it, like it made me recognize something very essential and very simple uh, uh, about the work and life experience uh, uh, of people in my life uh, that I understood intellectually, but but not really uh, like tangibly or uh, you know proprioceptically. I didn't understand it with my body. Hold on, I have to I have to look, I have to open my dictionary and look up proprioceptically really quick. Uh, no, it's I'm using it wrong. It's uh, it's like when you learn stuff by your muscle movements. There's a great word. Great word. Term for it. You win. Maybe it's proprioceptic. Yeah. Elder, uh, that's a tough act to follow there. But do you have some uh, some final thoughts on the game, or are you, I'm just wave, wave it like, off? It's waving good. You. It's good. <laughs> Matt, it's good. Get it. No, I, I think I think Dimitri uh, makes a great point. Like you know, again, a big part of my career, what thirty plus years or so has been in academia and um yeah like from an institutional standpoint it, it's almost like you got the front of the building where you got the kids and the, you know it's got to be fun and you got to sell it and you know you got to make money but then you also have like you know things like accreditation and you know like all these rules and regulations that have to be upheld and infrastructure and you know what i mean and and, and again it's like you know, these board games are, are, are abstractions of these things and and part of the hallmark of a strong design is that you can capture that and and and, and make it abstract and playable and, and somehow have it, you know, still be fun. Like not like a like a, a boring dry simulation, but like a fun, you know, snappy, you know, again everybody knows what they're doing. You can play this thing in a couple of hours and have a blast and and you know pay attention to that part or not you know it's great all right great well let, well, it's gonna be tough now <laughs> but i yeah. think we actually need to shift to our uh, our member segment here uh dimitri do you want to do you want to start us off you suggested the term of immersiveness as a as an excellent topic to do with uh, elder as the main co-host here do you want to start us off on why why you chose this topic i think it's a it's a great topic for all three of you except me uh but i i think uh for me immersiveness is personal uh and a person or a group of players may find one game immersive where another person or a group of players will not but i think that for elder uh, Elder, I, I, personally, I feel your fascination with, with, with uh, materials in the game, with resources in the game, and your experience in video games uh, make you someone who naturally thinks of immersiveness, or at least in my mind, if I simulate Elder, I think Elder is thinking of immersiveness. Matt, I, I, I think uh, you are the person who's most excited about solo games, uh, on this podcast uh, and in my life. And I think you have a special ability uh, to immerse yourself in games where I would like bounce off of it. You can immerse yourself in a rule book. You can immerse yourself just by looking at the board and moving a few pieces on a 10 minute break from writing. And Trey, 
you created several immersive game experiences um, at, at, at various libraries and museums. Um, and, and I participated in one of them, and I saw people immerse themselves in them. Uh, and I think, for me, I have a theory of like how that happens. Um, and I can talk about it now, but I want to let you talk about it a little bit and see if I can pick up a few things here and there. Great. Well, why don't we try to define our terms? Um, and I think that's actually tough uh, because immersiveness has been used in a lot of different ways. I think I'm going to try to get towards the way it's used in games specifically um, more often. Um so let, let's talk about immersiveness, because what I want to do is make a distinction between immersiveness and engagement, because I think a lot of times when people talk about immersiveness, what they really mean is that they're really engaged. And I want to talk about immersiveness as uh, that, like an immersive experience is the perception of being in one place when you are actually in another, or it's a suspension of reality, even for uh, a few moments. Elder works in the VR space in which they talk about presence. And this is about like your perception of being physically present in a non-physical world. So presence could also be like a theoretical concept describing the extent in which media represents the world. So in a sense, like some of this is about feeling like you're there. It might have, especially in the, in the, in the video game world or the VR world, it's going to have a real sensory component. Right, we're talking about you're experiencing things visually and aud and audioly. You're like you're, you know, and so it's oftentimes about like perceiving space. But you know, it can also, Dimitri, be thing like immersion can be. I'm experiencing narrative immersion or strategic, or 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 tactical immersion. But it isn't just I'm really involved. Um, no, no. Uh, I agree and. Uh, again, I, I might as well like say something about what makes it for me, right? For, for, for me, immersion is like having no distractions or the ability, if I'm immerse, immersed in something, uh, distractions are not going to uh, 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 bother me. But when I really thought about it, to me, distractions are an important part of immersion that something can immerse me if it presents me with all these distractions, but they all lead me back into the fold of the experience. Uh, so, for example, Moulin Rouge is a movie with so many bells and whistles. It's too, too much to keep track of, but it's immersive because of that. Or a painting by Hieronymus Bosch, uh, or a three-ring circus by Ringling Brothers. There's so much going on. You don't know where to look, and, and you just fall into it. And I have examples of board games that do that for me. And, and, and the I want to go to Elder. Before we get into our own like, – before we pivot to board games, yes. I'd love to hear from – from elder because I think like one of the things you were just talking about there was like details or distractions. A lot of times those details are the things that sell the reality. Yes. Right. Um, so elder, you want to talk about presence or your own experience in, in virtual reality and like the factors that help build immersiveness in, in virtual reality. Sure. Um, I mean, 
so first is there's two different types of, of VR, right? There's there's 360 video, right, which is which is more similar to live action film, except it's completely surrounding you. And then there's um, you know, well, I guess what you can call in engine. Um, which is probably most effective and think, I mean, two engines are predominantly used unity and unreal. Right. And, you know, people make a big deal out of, of how, how detailed the environments are and the lighting are when you use something like the unreal engine and a, and a really, you know, beefy, you know, computer and, you know, all the, the top technology, right. You know, a top of line headset, um, and I can tell you, so from the live action portion, it's really about um, the getting rid of the, the the distractions or glitches or anything to make you think that it's not real, right? Right. Which in the early days was the scenes, right? And I won't get into a detailed explanation of that, but, but basically, if, if you if you see something that obviously catches your eye like a seam, two things, two two pictures don't line up, then you're like, okay, this isn't real, right? So you want to make sure that it, that it's seamless and that the sound works. And then it gets more into, um, you know, just some other, I mean, there's just so many technical hurdles because it's well, There's a ton of things that can take you out of it. And so you're constantly you. addressing those things that can you remove you from the experience. Right. Once all that stuff is handled, which is incredibly hard to do, right? It's gotten better with technology. Then, yeah, you can have experiences where, again, the one that always comes to mind for me, I can't remember the title of the piece, but if you Google something like, uh, you know, VR, um, uh, what was it? Africa. Oh God, it was uh, Ebola, Ebola VR, right? There was this, this documentary piece about, um, uh, about a woman who survived Ebola and she was helping people in Africa and um, waves of grace is called. And um, man, when I, this was like one of the things that knocked my socks off, like one of my early experiences with 360 video and VR where for days after, well, first of all, it brought me to tears in the headset mm. because it was so immersive because I felt so connected this, to this woman because of the way it was produced and shot and everything. And then for, and this is the kind of scary thing about VR immersion is that it's, it's imperceptible from a dream or a real memory when it's done. Mm-hmm. Correctly. So for days after, even though I hadn't had yet been to Af- Africa, I felt like I had been there. Like I had been to Africa, I'd been in the African marketplace that I had met this woman at the, with this woman that I was standing with her on the beach that I embraced her. Like it was your brain's not making that distinction in the exactly. way that the memories recorded between real yeah. and simulated. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe let's let's pivot back to to board games then and, and try to get to what we mean by immersiveness in 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 board games. And like first thing I want to say is like board games are not, in my opinion, a very immersive medium. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but compared to other forms of media, uh it's 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 harder in in board games like board games tend to be the realm of extract of abstraction and we're modeling reality rather than re recreated it recreating it and i think that like abstraction is the enemy of immersion 
And so we're already kind of like uh, in, a, in a space where immersion is not going to be uh, dominating. But again, it really does, I, I don't want to interrupt, but it really does depend on your definition of immersive. Okay. But th- what distinction would you w- w- want to make? Like you, um, like if, okay, just let me put it this way. If you, if you were playing um, a virtual reality game, as soon as you start to put a user interface in order to have people comprehend what's going on in the world, you've just eliminated a lot of immersion, right? You've taken me out. Exactly. Exactly. And again, right. so... You know, part of the reason why doing an in, an engine experience and and having it be you know um, the ability to have so much detail in terms of like lighting and texture, everything is because you want to make it as real as possible, right? Um, the the Webster definition of immersive is providing, involving, or characterized by deep absorption or immersion in something such as an activity or a real or artificial environment. Real or artificial, it could be either. Uh, philosopher David Chalmers has a book coming out on Tuesday about that, the lack of distinction between those. Yeah, and, and again, for me, yeah, board games are never going to, are, are going to have that level of like, you know, no matter how good the design is, I'm I'm not going to have that feeling of presence that I have in VR that I'm actually like constructing a zoo or farming or anything else or or building a rocket and going to space, right? So the the closest I feel like you could come in a board game is do the mechanisms and the theme make me feel like I'm doing the thing that the intention is is and and there I think there's several games that that do that and you know, again, I I think as as abstract as it is, I I, I kind of I feel that way. There's definitely, and also I think there's there's story factors into it as well, right? And I think that's a great absolutely. That's a that's a great aspect of you know going back to Arc Nova, right? Do I actually feel like I'm constructing an enclosure and bringing this animal in? Not exactly. The, the building the enclosure is more abstract. The, I know that there was a very conscious decision to use photographs of actual animals that come from real places in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do I feel like my, you know, lion from Africa is coming, you know, or my rhino? Yeah, I can, I can kind of imagine. They're real animals. They're not fictional animals. Exactly. Yeah. yeah not I, cartoons. Right. Exactly. They're not, they're not high, highly detailed, rendered uh, concept art paintings, like on a magic mm-hmm. card, you know, I'm actually yeah. looking at that animal and it's a, and it's a real, it's a real, you know, species and type. So to, Matt, to quote, I, oh, let me, let me go real quick here. Just let me get my little Ted talk in here. Cause I, I had some, some thoughts about that. I wanted to agree with you elder on the, on your, on that. That was my number one, you know, to quote Tom, 100%, 100%. Like if I'm thinking about what makes a board game immersive for me, the first thing was, does playing the game make you feel like you are doing the thing that the game is about? And so yes. I think we could probably stop there and that would be enough. But I did think about a few other things that might lend itself to immersiveness, depending on how we define the thing, which we can continue to argue about. But to me, one of the things that might add to immersiveness is does the game board have a representation of actual physical space? Like, are you located in the game? Do you have presence? You know, is there a point where you can point to 
you know, which lends me to number three is like, are you represented as an individual in the game? A lot of times when we explain, like, how do you play the game and you're kind of like telling the story of it, there are games in which you, it's kind of abstract about like what you're actually doing. You know, like you might be the head of a uh, railroad company, but you probably don't have a figure in which this person is moving around the board. But there are games in which you do, in which you can you can point to the board in Gloomhaven and say, "That's me. I'm there. I'm in a physical space, and I'm and I'm moving around in in the game." And I was even thinking about like that scene from. Um, Searching for Bobby Fisher, in which Bruce Pandolfini is coaching young Josh Waitskin, and he has the the chessboard in front of it with all the different pieces, and he says, "You know, which one is you?" And and Josh doesn't understand what the question is asking, and then he grabs the king and slams it down and says, "This is you." Like that's that's kind of a way of of making chess more personal, more more immersive. Is like you have to stand like you're the king in the game the game ends when the king dies the king is you and i think when games when when you have a game when you can say this is me in the game that's going to lead to stronger immersiveness and then the final one that i came up with is you know and maybe this relates to video games also is does the game have a conception of time because time kind of conveys permanence you know we're in an we're in an environment and it continues to evolve like can we affect the thing but it could also be like, does the game continue without you in, in a way that kind of suggests that there's a reality there? Like, for example, Matt, you and I have a game of, um, what is it, Forgotten Waters or... Um, Sleeping Gods. Sleeping Gods. That is frozen in time right now. Mm. But we can return to that. That world lives on somewhere. Mm. And when we return to that game, we can continue it. But we will also say, we are here. The ship is here and it's a very mm -hmm. specific place in the map. So it's like the world of sleeping gods continues even when we're not playing. And that to me suggests a greater degree of immersiveness in games. Yeah. Matt, I, I, I feel that uh, as a Russian literature major, uh, you, you cannot read Russian books without diving into them. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't read Tolstoy. You can't read Dostoevsky. Uh, without being immersed in that world. I, I always thought that the reason that uh, you play solo games and enjoy solo games so much uh, is in part because you have that ability, that, that there's something yeah. in your makeup. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. No, For, uh, for me, immersion is all about the, that novelistic aspect of getting sucked into a story. So for me, when I think immersion... I've never felt immersed in that, in, in the sense that I define it in a Euro game. The, the only time I ever feel immersed is anything that gets close to the theater of the mind experience you get from D&D. &D. And nothing that I played in a board game gets as close as that. That to me is the pinnacle of immersiveness. I am picturing my, you know, dwarf rogue doing whatever, whatever. And I am there and you are there and we're all smelling it and seeing it. And I am fully immersed in that experience. But I, I, I do tr try to get that experience out of board games. And I usually only play those solo. Um, and, that, and, and specifically when I do that, I'm looking for games that put me down on the table in the board 
where I'm literally sometimes even lowering my eyes and imagining I'm in there. And, and if the game has terrain, even better. If the game has tables and uh, you know lava on the floor and I have a really cool mini and there's a dragon that's three times bigger than my mini and you know all that kind of stuff is full of I'm I'm that's me on the board. I can look down at my character card, I see that I'm wearing this helmet, these pants, I have this sword, you know, that's me. This is my hit points. This is, you know, how how close I am to dying. All that stuff is which is all just trying to simulate the experience you get from D&D. Um, but that, those are the only times that I feel immersed. And there's been a lot of games that have done it without needing the trappings of D&D. Um, Sleeping Gods is a good example of that, of you know, things that are getting away from you know, just your, your basic run-of-the-mill fantasy stuff. But, but most of those experiences are all about yeah, putting me on the board, making me the king in the chess, in the chess game, exactly. Yeah, those shots like that searching for Bobby Fischer of the camera literally looking through the chess pieces at his face to make him seem like he's himself on the chessboard. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I and I literally do play solo games because it gives me the same experience of reading a novel. And that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I'd like to counter this whole line. <laughs> Go for it. And and that, again, coming from a you know from a VR standpoint, whether it's three sixty video or or game engine, right? One of the big problems that you have. When it's a 360 video, again, something that takes you out of the experience that makes you uh, call attention to this is not real life is that when you look down, you can't see yourself. Right. <laughs> right. Um, when you are in a, um, a 3D simulation, a game engine simulation, uh, again, probably some of the most effective versions of this are, are the really high end location based uh, versions of it where, um, you know, the, the creators of these experiences make great pains to, um, have you have an avatar. Yeah. Like half-life Alex. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so you look down and you can see yourself probably like, so what comes to mind is I did, um, the star, the void has a star Wars experience mm. where you're, uh, you play a stormtrooper. So actually you're a rebel, but you are dressed as a stormtrooper and you, and you actually, you know, you go into um, a little uh, armory and you grab yourself a pistol and you have a shootout with other stormtroopers, right? There is a, a great deal of immersion, you know, in that because you look down, you see, you got the, you know, stormtrooper uniform on, you're, you're holding an actual physical weapon in your hand that looks just like a blaster from Star Wars. You're shooting it. At, at people, your shots are, are hitting and having an effect and you are getting hit and you feel yourself getting hit because you have a physical vest on that has those haptics, right? So um, the counter to that in, in games, I would say, is that when you, as soon as you see yourself as a physical piece for me, then that immediately takes me out of the expansion because how could that be me? Because I'm me over here. So how can that be me? Right. Whereas I feel like a game where you have a um, more like a, a God type view, um, uh, oddly, the game container. Right. When you, <laughs> when, you, when you play it on a map and the map is actually like an ocean and you got these little freighters and you're collecting crates and you're bidding with other people. I feel like that's more immersive because I'm definitely me there. Right. 
having my little ship and, you know, making these trades and making these deals and making things happen in front of me. Um, and that, and that feels more immersive to me than the other. Do we want to pivot to, uh, as a, maybe as a way of wrapping up, because we, we do have a lot of definitions here and I think that's fine. Do we want to kind of pivot to games that we consider immersive? Uh, yes. Uh, can I start? Yeah, sure. Uh, okay. Uh, so for, for, uh, because I have one extra little bit of definition still to go, and and, and, and then I can refer to it later. Uh, so Paul, and actually all of us, talk a lot about the two planes of playing games, uh, the, the two levels, the, the, the board and, and the game above the board. The game above the board is where we are talking to our fellow players, trying to figure out what their strategies are, what the tactics are, what they want. And then there's a plane of the board, and on the board, there's a physical embodiment of the mechanisms of the game and the theme. And for me, when the game insists that what we talk about above the board and what's happening on the board, the pieces and the cardboard interact so that I cannot grasp what's happening unless I look up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And when the movement of a piece on the board affects my behavior and my relationship to a, fl- a fellow player, or, or when a fellow player's speech uh, or, 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 or what they look like or their excitement or their fear is explained by what's happening on the board. When I keep looking up and down, I keep piercing that separation between above the board and the board itself. And the two layers, the boundary between them starts to dissolve. And that's when I feel I'm literally falling into the game because I'm looking back and forth and back and forth. Uh, What made me realize that, Trey, was... uh, during the um, Situation Room experience at the presidential library that you designed, where there was a lot of interaction among the kids who were playing it, but they also had to look at the iPads where I think every 60 seconds or shorter, there was some new event that was adding a dimension to their interactions. Uh, So they couldn't stay just in the social world or just looking down at the pad. They had to look up and down. They had to move across that boundary. So a game that I like, a board game that I like that does that beautifully is Eclipse. Uh, Because it has big spaceships on it. It has a space map. It, it, It has, I look at the board and I can tell who's threatening me, whose fleet is threatening me. Who's about to attack? Who maybe wants an alliance? All of that discussion above the board uh, with me and Tom or me and Paul or me and Trey or me and Matt when we're playing the game completely changes when Paul puts down a huge, gigantic spaceship right on the border of my territory. Neither the above-the-board reality or the board reality contains the entire understanding of the game. To play it successfully, 
I have to look up and down. I have to tie them together. I have to erase the boundary between the two. Yes, there are minis, but sometimes minis don't mean anything. Here's a, a big, gigantic god, but that's just a character. But the minis in Eclipse carry a ton of meaning. The, the, the tech tracks in Eclipse tell you who will attack you and how they will attack you. And if somebody's buying a big can- plasma cannon and they're smiling at you <laughs> across the table, you better watch out. <laughs> that smile may not mean what you think it means or what you hope it means. The two worlds fuse and, and I become immersed. Yeah, if I, can, if I can respond, I'm not sure I understand your point. I can only kind of speak to, thank you for, you know, promoting the situation room experience, which is designed to be an immersive experience. I would, I would just say that like, if I had my druthers, I definitely don't want people participating in that game, looking up, looking down, looking up, looking down at their tablet. If it, if I had my druthers, I'd get, get, I could get rid of the tablet altogether and people would merely feel like I am this person I am in this space in which it is real and rather than having to push a button on the tablet in order to make something happen having them have a conversation on the phone or say you know I'm ordering you know the you know fifth airborne into the Ukraine and it would sim- it would simply happen I think it it can work because I'm trying to take a tablet and that can be diegetic to the space so that it doesn't feel art- artificial yeah, because you know, the same way tablets yeah so I, I can i can kind of see your your point about this kind of fusion between between the the narrative and the fiction of the game and the social reality of the interactions and the players i think that's very interesting i'm not sure that's immersiveness but i th- i think it's you know it's still an interesting you know dynamic that that you described there. Um, it's interesting Matt, that what's a yeah. bug for you is a feature for me. Um, and and for me, it really is a feature because every form of artistic expression is limited in some way. Theater is limited; it's limited to the physical space. Movies are limited; they're ultimately take place in a rectangle, and, and you don't get to choose what happens. In this but, it's, case, but it's not immersive if you're watching a play, if you're looking down and reading the script at the same time and looking up and looking down and looking up and looking down. I, I don't see how that would be. I mean, maybe that's not the same thing, but that doesn't seem more immersive to me. I think it's more immersive when you forget yourself in the middle of a of a play and your sense of self dissolves away and you are completely caught up in in what's happening on the stage, whether that's literal theater or theater of the mind, which I think is what Matt is talking about in a lot of immersiveness of, of the narrative component of games and of fiction. Uh, agreed. Uh, but uh, in a three-ring circus or a Hieronymus Bosch painting, I, I think a Hieronymus Bosch painting is very much like a board game. There are all these details that are drawing your attention away to themselves. My eyes keep darting from the gigantic bird that's eating three people to Adam and Eve to Satan to whatever. And the fact that my eyes are moving constantly back and forth is what makes that painting immersive. If I were just staring at it and not moving my eyes, 
it would be a Rembrandt. A Rembrandt is wonderful, but I'm always conscious of the plane of the painting. I'm always conscious of myself as an observer in front of it. Um, and the that activity of the eyes and, and the attention, the fact that my attention is constantly moving around, never resting, can't rest. It, the game is not allowing my attention to rest it, it is what does it for me. Elder, is there any way you can tie whatever Dimitri's talking about here to virtual reality? Just so I know, like, for example, like eye tracking, what people are looking at is something you nearly need to control in virtu- virtual reality, right? Like your eye darting around would be a problem somewhat well, in, in virtual reality, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, that's that's part of the big problem, particularly in a 360 video, right? Which is, again, one of the reasons why the poise, the, the the piece that I stated, Waves of Grace, works so well, is that the director does a great job of because you can't control where the person looks. The person can literally look anywhere, right? And so, what you need to do is with sound and with and with visual cues and choreography, the best you can hope for is directing the person's point of view and where they look. And there's a really great movement, uh, great moment in that piece where. You know, there's like there's like a little girl. You're you're in a um, uh, an empty swimming pool, and uh, some kids are in front of you, and they point up, and you look up, and there's a little girl. You would never see it. There's a little girl right above you on a a diving board, and she's waving at you. And then when you look back, the kids are running away, and you have this moment of like, oh my god, where are you going? You know, like you have this very visceral moment and it's, it's all planned and it's all, all choreographed. But if the if the person who's in the experience doesn't play along or misses it, then that then that moment is gone, much like real life. Right. So I, I think I think what I get with Dimitri saying, but I also think there's an important distinction between sensory overload, which is like my senses are so bombarded that I really I'm just I'm just getting, you know, lots of visual or lots of audio wherever it is which I think is distinct from immersiveness, which is, I think is a different sensation. Okay. So while we're on immersiveness, let's do, have we done, we haven't done your immersive game list. No. have we? No, no, no. Um, I will say my games are, you know, just some of my favorites, um, the gallerists. And again, for me, immersiveness in board games is more like, does the, the game make me feel like, the thing that it's trying to do, right? I think that's the closest we could get because they are abstractions, right? So in the galleries, I feel like I'm an international art dealer. I'm I'm discovering artists. I'm actually getting physical pieces of art to put in in my gallery or to sell. Um, um, I have my own gallery and I'm having, you know, certain people come in and come out of my gallery and I and I and I'm managing a, a, a team of people that are helping me and hiring them, and it, it all feels like I'm doing those things, right? Um, New Amsterdam, which we you know reviewed and talked about before, um, stands out because you really do feel like you know you are developing this land, and you got this whole thing with the Native Americans across the river that are being displaced as the game progresses, and you know, you're, you're making these trades with these actual furs of different animals and so forth. Um, I'll, I'll mention just one more. Lagrange um, is a great game where you, you have, you know, all these cards that have, um, you know, different, 
unique um, roles to them that have different powers. Um, but you are, you know, you have this little farm on your on your player board, and you are, um, you know, having these grapes and these and grain and so forth, and you got these cows that are in these stables, and you have an actual farmhouse that you're building a roof on. And, and I can imagine that I'm, you know, this is my own unique farm that I'm, that I'm building up and managing every game. Yeah. How about you, Matt? Yeah. So you guys mentioned iPads earlier as something that could potentially take someone out of the experience or Dimitri felt it was, uh, you know, making it immersive. I, I think iPads have been fantastic for solo board gaming or or i guess some people play these with other people but like fantasy flight's new version of descent descent legend of the dark is uh you know you have to use an ipad with it and it does this great thing where the terrain is only laid out when you move off the terrain into a new piece so there is a total awesome immersionist of like all right i'm in the forest right now and um, i'm gonna go left and usually in a board game you know you'd see the rest of the map because you had to build it before you started the scenario. But the app tells you what piece to pull out and put on the board. So you literally feel like you're lost in the woods and you don't know exactly what's going to happen when you turn places. On top of that, they have NPC, you know, actors playing all the NPCs. So there's voices, they're playing music the whole time. You can turn it off if you don't like it. But all that stuff like makes it feel very cinematic and it does start feeling like a novel coming to life in front of me. So that the, the new version of Descent, I think is a fantastic version of it. Mansions of Madness 2.0 is the first one that I had played that used the iPad that I thought made it really immersive. Um, you know, then you get things like Nemo's War, which is a solo game that's also very immersive, really puts you in the moment. And there's a lot of randomness and, you know, pulling things out of bags, not knowing what's going to happen. That that kind of stuff can lead to immersiveness for me as well of just like um, really feeling like I'm, you know, up against it and am I going to survive? Um, so, yeah, those are my sort of things that I think of when I think of immersiveness. Yeah, it's a great example because like I, I had... Um gloomhaven and descent on my list as well but like maybe a tiny distinction to make is is the way that the uh the tablet keeps the map in the dark for you in a way that gloomhaven doesn't like gloomhaven you look you when you start that scenario you see the whole map and you're considering the whole thing kind of like from from the get-go and so yeah that's why world expand out for you as you play it is going to be more immersive yeah, I, 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 for that exact reason, I don't find Gloomhaven immersive at all. I, I find it to be a, a puzzle. I find it to be, a, you know, a, um, you know, an, an optimization puzzle that you have to figure out. And I, I'm very much not in the narrative. And I, in fact, don't care about the narrative of Gloomhaven. I couldn't tell you one thing about it. I played like 40 scenarios in Gloomhaven, probably. And yeah, I maybe couldn't the characters tell you have anything. three different names. You, you, you know, and, and nicknames, and, and, and there was yeah. a whole bunch of philosophizing about their mental states. Exactly, and then, yes. And maybe then you would find it more compelling. Yeah, exactly. And Some of that might also very be the, the writing, but I, I definitely uh, take your point. The, you know, the first thing I thought of here was actually like going back to a really formative game for the this, the Game Brain group was Battlestar Galactica. Um, mm-hmm. But again, this is probably using, you know, my definition, but, you know, you're playing one person there, you move around the board, there's a constant sense of threat as things move around um, in there. And so like that was one, I think obviously like the, the, the board games that are kind of like RPG adjacent are going, you know, by the kind of standards you were putting out, Matt, 
are going to feel a little bit more immersive uh, mm-hmm. to me, at least the way I defined it. Uh, Trey, Battlestar Galactica is on my list of three games, uh, but from a slightly different perspective, because for me, it's a social deduction game. And social deduction games like uh, our favorite, Avalon, can be played entirely above the board with, with almost no reference to the board. But what makes Battlestar immersive for me in the way that Avalon is not is that you have to look at the board. You have to, where the players are. Are they in space uh, on, on, on a battleship? Are, are they uh, in one of, in Pegasus and not in Battlestar Galactica? Are, are, are they in the brig? Are they in the hospital? Are they in the engine room? All of that matters. And also, the board is where the cards are revealed. And the cards reveal some of the intentions uh, of, of who you're playing with. Do you have traitors on board? So you're constantly looking from the your fellow players to the board because the board contains information without which reading your players um, uh, it won't work. And the players supply information that the board won't give you. I keep constantly looking back and forth because of that. Uh, and Elder, uh, you, you said uh, sensory overload. Uh, and a light bulb went off in my head. For me, immersion is sensory overload. Because for me, reality is too much, right? <laughs> I, I can't capture it all. Uh, when I was taking sound at USC, Trey, you probably remember this, um, uh, we were told that Walter Murch, the sound designer of Apocalypse Now, and a, a, an absolutely brilliant guy, said, you can only hear three things at a time. So put four things in a movie, and you'll overwhelm somebody, and you will make it totally real. You put four, like, music, sound effect, uh, dialogue, and one other special thing, and, and it'll overwhelm the senses. Uh, and for me, the game that overwhelms my senses is Tolkien. It's just so interesting. There's so many things to look at. There are these wheels, and they're unpredictable, and they're piles of corn, and they're crystal skulls. I, I feel a sensory overload, and, and I fall into it. I may not like it. I didn't like it the first few times I played it, but I feel overwhelmed. All right. Well, I think I want to thank you for that. I want to do I want us to get to our 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 own favorite games of 2021. So why, let's 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 do that right now um, as maybe as as quickly as as we can. Uh, Matt, you want to lead us off here? Um, just your, your personal. Where do you weigh in on your favorite games of 2021? Are we going to each do our three, two, one or should I just do all three? Well, let's just do, each a- do our three, two, one. Oh, I'm sorry. Why don't you do your your three? Oh, you got it. Uh, I will do my number three game of the year for me is uh, Oath. Um, Oath, I think, is the most interesting game that was released this year. It's officially called Oath Chronicles of Empire and Exile. It's the one game I wish I played more. It's the only game I played this year that was like learning a new language. It was unlike, it had no mechanisms that I could relate to another game. It was like no other game I played. I still don't really feel like I get it, but I'm very intrigued by it. 
it's a game I, I genuinely want to play 20 more times to find out if I even like it. <laughs> um, but that's how interesting I think it is. My second favorite game. Oh, and it, this is uh, Cole Worley. And if you're playing uh, Keeping Score at Home, my game of the year last year was Pax Premier Second Edition. Uh, so Cole Worley is obviously somebody I like. Uh, my second favorite game of the year is Coffee Traders. Uh, Capstone Games had the best year they've ever had. Uh, just based on the games that we love on this board game podcast. Um, but I think this game is really interesting. This is my favorite, like, big, heavy Euro of the year. Um, I had liked Wild Catters that the designers had done before, but I love Coffee Traders. Um, I feel like it's a game that uh, I'm excited to keep playing. Um, my number one game of the year uh five times in the 12 years i've been in this hobby i have played a game and after the first game i said this is in my top 10 favorite games of all time not of the year of all time first it happened with great western trail lorenzo il magnifico the gallerist barrage and now arc nova those are five games that i have played and after the first game i went that's in my top 10 of all time wow um not only do I think this is the best game of the year and a game we will still be talking about in five years? Uh, I think it's a revelation. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's incredible. I'm blown away by it. Um, and I think I look forward to playing it and playing its expansions for years and years to come. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that, um, you know, myself just in terms of like, Oh, I can't wait to play this again. You yeah. Know, like that. I'm really, I'm really just dying to play it more in a way that's you know, almost not even healthy you know you know what's crazy i haven't actually played it i've only played the, <laughs> You've only played the it version online. on my computer that's what's nuts i ha- i don't have it yet it's it has so much in better state. in person i know El- elder has uh, a copy uh, that is being passed around a- amongst local reviewers here um and i have not played the physical version yet so it's it's almost insane how much i love it and i've only played it online <laughs> but I, I can't wait to get my copy in the next month. All right, Elder, why don't you go? Uh, okay, so, um, I mean, these are all uh, newer games, um, but I would say right now, and, and actually I, I want to say real quickly, there's a couple games I haven't played yet. And again, right. I, I always get confused about whether are we counting this as a 21 or 22 if it came right. out. And, yeah. But, you know, Lacerda is my, I think, still my favorite designer. And so I really need to get Weather Machine under my belt. Yep. Um, I still want to play Gollum. I haven't played that yet. Um, is Weather Machine 2021? I guess that's kind of your point. It's like you don't even know whether it's 22 or 21. Well, the, the Kickstarter closed in 2021, but it's one. I, but it I, 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 think we'll, well, I think we'll be lucky to see it in 22. Right, right. So um, I would say right now, uh, my number three is Botoku. Um, you know, strong game. I'm really intrigued by just the design and the interesting, um, you know, kind of like dice worker, worker, worker placement mechanic of it is, is really interesting and fun. Uh, number two, Darwin's Journey, uh, the game I love. I've gotten a lot of reps in of that game and still find it really fun. And yeah, of course, my number one, Arc Nova. Dimitri? Uh, my number three is Coffee Traders. Uh, I feel it's a game that combines in a really interesting and organic way uh, a farming game and a wine producing game. 
Uh, I think there are a ton of farming games. Some of my favorite games are wine production games. This it, it would be at the peak, a double peak of both those genres for me. Uh, my second favorite uh, is Darwin's Journey uh, because I feel that the theme is so interesting and the mechanisms are so tightly related to the theme that I feel I'm learning about actual Darwin's journey. Uh, it may be a mirage. I may be fooling myself, but I hope not. Uh, and, and I really like the experience. And, and my number one is Boon Lake. Wow. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Just kidding. Uh, Ark no. Nova. that's funny Uh, I think I I think I taught you coffee traders Dimitri didn't I Uh, I think you I I think it was I remember Candace there but I think you did I I think Candace and Tom reviewed coffee traders on the podcast uh, and Candace is such a strong presence that I've replaced her uh, mm. I've replaced you with her in my memory, but thank you so much for that. Uh, I, I thought maybe David Gillison, friend of the podcast, was there too, and Andy yeah. and the Cowardly Lion, uh, but <laughs> it, it, it's a great game. And thank you, Matt, for teaching it to me. And thank you, Do- thank you, Elder, for teaching me Ark Nova and for teaching me Darwin's Journey. Elder taught me Darwin's Journey too. I'm very excited to play more of that. Yeah, I, I would just want to reiterate kind of what Elder was saying is like this year, especially with COVID, you know, un, unlike the, the, the before times, um, I'm just really conscious of like, there's no way that like my list can represent like the best games. These yeah. are just like my favorite games that I have played and it, and it can't be uh, definitive. Like I, I could probably do a list of 20 games that I still would like to play that were from 2021 that I haven't gotten to yet. I mean, Matt, you were just mentioning the Imperium games that I'm not really dying to play with you. Um, Honorable mentions for me would be Messina, Gutenberg, and I'd probably put Darwin on there of of like games that I would expect to continue to still be playing five years from now if someone pulls it out and I would say, yeah, yeah, I'd I'd play that, which if you know how persnickety I am, that's that's pretty high praise. Um, I was with Jennifer all the way up till the end of December that Imperial Steam was my number one game of the year so that's my number two because arc nova um definitely every time i play it i like it more and i totally agree with you matt i i I didn't have the first time i played it this is a top 10 game but i think i said on the bgg we were at bgg con i thought this was the game with the highest upside so i've learned to love it more i had a little bit of a different reaction but I'm I do feel pretty confident that, you know, I predict that like 18 months from now, I think this game's gonna be in the top ten. On BGG. On BGG. Yeah. I don't think it's yeah. just us. I think no. I think this is a breakout hit. And so it, like, they're on their third printing and it hasn't even shipped to America yet. This is this is a massive hit. And this is I mean, Capstone, uh, we should all tip the hat to them. I mean I mean, look at our top three. They're, they're two thirds of them are capstone games. I mean, it's it's incredible. They bravo to them. All right. Well, thanks everyone. 
You have been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson, Tom Donnelly, Ben Mendelker, and myself. Thanks to Edomaros Peleg for our art. Check him out at kirbuloni.com. Thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music. You know them as Alfred. More on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can reach us by email at contact at GameBrainPod.com or on Twitter at GameBrain underscore pod. Thanks for listening and go play some games with friends or go make some friends with games.